Three Great Virtues, Three Essays by Emerson. Section 1. Self-Reliance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Self-Reliance, Part 1 Quote, Nite, Quesiveris, Extra, End quote. Quote, Man is his own star, and the soul that can render an honest and perfect man commands all light, all influence, all fate. Nothing to him falls early or too late. Our acts, our angels are, or good or ill. Our fatal shadows that walk by us still. End quote. Epilogue to Beaumont and Fletcher's Honest Man's Fortune Cast the bantling on the rocks, suckle him with the she-wolf's teat, wintered with hawk and fox, power and speed be hands and feet. Self-Reliance I read the other day some verses written by an eminent painter which were original and not conventional. The soul always hears an admonition in such lines, let the subject be what it may. The sentiment they instill is of more value than any thought they may contain. To believe your own thought, to believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men, that is genius. Speak your latent conviction, and it shall be the universal sense, for the inmost in due time becomes the outmost, and our first thought is rendered back to us by the trumpets of the last judgment. Familiar as the fair voice of the mind is to each, the highest merit we ascribe to Moses, Plato, and Milton is that they sat at naught books and traditions and spoke not what men, but what they thought. A man should learn to detect and watch that gleam of light which flashes across his mind from within more than the luster of the firmament of bards and sages. Yet he dismiss without notice his thought because it is his. In every work of genius we recognize our own rejected thoughts. They come back to us with a certain alienated majesty. Great works of art have no more affecting lesson for us than this. They teach us to abide by our spontaneous impression 
with good-humored inflexibility than most when the cry of voices is on the other side. Else tomorrow a stranger will say with masterly good sense precisely what we have thought and felt all the time, and we shall be forced to take with shame our own opinion from another. There is a time in every man's education when he arrives at the conviction that envy is ignorance, that imitation is suicide, that he must take himself for better, for worse, as his portion, that though the wide universe is full of good, no kernel of nourishing corn can come to him but through his toil bestowed on that plot of ground which is given to him to till. The power which resides in him is new in nature, and none but he knows what that is which he can do, nor does he know until he has tried. Not for nothing one face, one character, one fact, makes such impression on him and another none. This sculpture in the memory is not without pre-established harmony. The eye was placed where one ray should fall, that it might testify of that particular ray. We but half express ourselves and are ashamed of that divine idea which each of us represents, it may be safely trusted as proportionate and of good issue, so it be faithfully imparted. But God will not have his work made manifest by cowards. A man is relieved and gay when he has put his heart into his work and done his best. But what he has said or done otherwise shall give him no peace. It is a deliverance which does not deliver. In the attempt, his genius deserts him. No muse befriends him. No invention, no hope. Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. Accept the place the divine providence has found for you. The society of your contemporaries, the connection of events, great men have always done so, and confided themselves childlike to the genius of their age, betraying their perception that the absolutely trustworthy was seated at their heart, working through their hands, predominating in all their being, and we are now men, and must accept in the highest mind the same transcendent destiny, and not minors and invalids in a protected corner not cowards fleeing before a revolution,
but guides, redeemers, and benefactors obeying the almighty effort and advancing on chaos and the dark. What pretty oracles nature yields us on this text, in the face and behavior of children, babes, and even brutes, that divided and rebel mind that distrust of a sentiment because our arithmetic has computed the strength and means opposed to our purpose, these have not. Their mind being whole, their eye is yet unconquered, and when we look in their faces we are disconcerted. Infancy conforms to nobody, all conform to it, so that one babe commonly makes four or five out of the adults who prattle and play to it. So God has armed youth and puberty and manhood no less with its own piquancy and charm, and made it enviable and gracious and its claims not to be put by if it will stand by itself do not think the youth has no force because he cannot speak to you and me hark in the next room his voice is sufficiently clear and emphatic it seems he knows how to speak to his contemporaries. Bashful or bold then, he will know how to make us seniors very unnecessary. The nonchalance of boys who are sure of a dinner and would disdain as much as a lord to do or say ought to conciliate one is the healthy attitude of human nature. A boy is in the parlor what the pit is in the playhouse, independent, irresponsible, looking out from his corner on such people and facts as pass by. He tries and sentences them on their merits in the swift, summary way of boys, as good bad, interesting, silly, eloquent, troublesome. He cumbers himself never about consequences, about interests. He gives an independent, genuine verdict. You must court him. He does not court you. But the man is, as it were, clapped into jail by his own consciousness. As soon as he has once acted or spoken with eclat, he is a committed person, watched by the sympathy or the hatred of hundreds, whose affections must now enter into his account. There is no leave for this, that he could pass again into his neutrality, who could thus avoid all pledges, and having observed, observe again, from the same unaffected, unbiased, unbridgeable, unaffrighted innocence. 
must always be formidable. He would utter opinions on all passing affairs, which being seen to be not private but necessary, would sink like darts into the ear of men and put them in fear. These are the voices which we hear in solitude, but they grow faint and inaudible as we enter into the world. Society everywhere is in a conspiracy against the manhood of every one of its members. Society is a joint-stock company, in which the members agree, for the better securing of his bread to each shareholder, to surrender the liberty and culture of the eater. The virtue in most request is conformity. Self-reliance is its aversion. It loves not realities and creators, but names and customs. Whoso would be a man must be a nonconformist. He who would gather immortal palms must not be hindered by the name of goodness, but must explore if it be goodness. Nothing is at last sacred but the integrity of your own mind. Absolve you to yourself, and you shall have the suffrage of the world. I remember an answer which when quite young I was prompted to make to a valued adviser who was wont to importune me with the dear old doctrines of the church, on my saying, quote, What have I to do with the sacredness of traditions if I live wholly from within? End quote. My friend suggested, quote, But these impulses may be from below, not from above. End quote. I replied, quote, They do not seem to me to be such, but if I am the devil's child, I will live then from the devil. End quote. No law can be sacred to me but that of my nature. Good and bad are but names very readily transferable to that or this. The only right is what is after my constitution, the only wrong what is against it. A man is to carry himself in the presence of all opposition as if everything were titular and ephemeral, but he. I am ashamed to think how easily we capitulate to badges and names, to large societies and dead institutions. Every decadent and well-spoken individual affects and sways me more than is right. I ought to go upright and vital, and speak the rude truth in all ways. If malice and vanity wear the coat of philanthropy, shall that pass? 
if an angry bigot assumes this bountiful cause of abolition and comes to me with his last news from barbados why should i not say to him go love thy infant thy woodchopper be good-natured and modest have that grace and never varnish your hard uncharitable ambition with this incredible tenderness for black folk a thousand miles off thy love afar is spite at home rough and graceless would be such greeting but truth is handsomer than the affectation of love your goodness must have some edge to it else it is none the doctrine of hatred must be preached as the counteraction of the doctrine of love when that pules and whines i shun father and mother and wife and brother when my genius calls me i would write on the lintels of the doorpost whim i hope it is somewhat better than whim at last but we cannot spend the day in explanation expect me not to show cause why i seek or why i exclude company then again do not tell me as a good man did to-day of my obligation to put all poor men in good situations are they my poor i tell thee thou foolish philanthropist that i grudge the dollar the dime the cent i give to such men as do not belong to me and to whom i do not belong there is a class of persons to whom by all spiritual affinity i am bought and sold for them i will go to prison if need be but your miscellaneous popular charities the education at college of fools the building of meeting-houses to the vain end which many now stand alms to sots and the thousandfold relief societies though i confess with shame i sometimes succumb and give the dollar it is a wicked dollar which by and by I shall have the manhood to withhold. Virtues are, in the popular estimate, rather the exception than the rule. There is a man and his virtues. Men do what is called a good action as some piece of courage or charity, much as they would pay a fine in expiation of daily non-appearance on parade their works are done as an apology or extenuation of their living in the world as invalids and the insane pay a higher board their virtues are penances i do not wish to expiate but to live my life is for itself and not for a spectacle 
I much prefer that it should be of a lower strain, so it may be genuine and equal, than that it should be glittering and unsteady. I wish it to be sound and sweet, and not to need diet and bleeding. I ask primary evidence that you are a man, and refuse this appeal from the man to his actions. I know that for myself it makes no difference whether I do or forbear those actions which are reckoned excellent. I cannot consent to pay for a privilege where I have intrinsic right. Few and mean as my gifts may be, I actually am, and do not need for my own assurance or the assurance of my fellows any secondary testimony. What I must do is all that concerns me, not what the people think. This rule, equally arduous in actual and in intellectual life, may serve for the whole distinction between greatness and meanness. It is the harder because you will always find those who think they know what is your duty better than you know it. It is easy in the world to live after the world's opinion. It is easy in solitude to live after our own. But the great man is he who, in the midst of the crowd, keeps with perfect sweetness the independence of solitude. The objection to conforming to usages that have become dead to you, is that it scatters your force. It loses your time and blurs the impression of your character. If you maintain a dead church, contribute to a dead Bible society, vote with a great party either for the government or against it, spread your table like base housekeepers, under all these screens I have difficulty to detect the precise man you are, and of course so much force is withdrawn from your proper life. But do your work and I shall know you. Do your work and you shall reinforce yourself. A man must consider what a blind man's bluff is this game of conformity. If I know your sect, I anticipate your argument. I hear a preacher announce for his text and topic the expediency of one of the institutions of his church. Do I not know beforehand that not possibly can he say a new and spontaneous word? Do I not know that with all this ostentation of examining the grounds of the institution, he will do no such thing? Do I not know that he is pledged to himself not to look but at one side, the permitted side, 
not as a man, but as a parish minister. He is a retained attorney, and these heirs of the bench are the emptiest affectation. Well, most men have bound their eyes with one or another handkerchief, and attach themselves to some one of these communities of opinion. This conformity makes them not false in a few particulars, authors of a few lies, but false in all particulars. Their every truth is not quite true. Their two is not the real two, therefore not the real four so that every word they say chagrins us, and we know not where to begin to set them right. Meantime, nature is not slow to equip us in the prison uniform of the party to which we adhere. We come to wear one cut of face and figure, and acquire by degrees the gentlest asinine expression. There is a mortifying experience in particular, which does not fail to wreak itself also in general history. I mean, quote, the foolish face of praise, end quote. The forced smile which we put on in company where we do not feel at ease in answer to conversation which does not interest us the muscles not spontaneously moved but moved by a low usurping willfulness grow tight about the outline of the face with the most disagreeable sensation for nonconformity the world whips you with its displeasure and therefore a man must know how to estimate a sour face the bystanders look askance on him in the public street or in the friend's parlor. If this aversation had its origin in contempt and resistance, like his own, he might well go home with a sad countenance. But the sour face of the multitude, like their sweet faces, have no deep cause but are put on and off as the wind blows and a newspaper directs. Yet is the discontent of the multitude more formidable than that of the Senate and the College. It is easy enough for a firm man who knows the world to brook the rage of the cultivated classes. Their rage is decorous and prudent for they are timid as being very vulnerable themselves. But when to their feminine rage the indignation of the people is added, when the ignorant and the poor are aroused, when the unintelligent brute force that lies at the bottom of society is made to growl and mow, it needs the habit of magnanimity and religion to treat it godlike as a trifle of no concernment. The other terror that scares us from self-trust 
is our consistency, a reverence for our past act or word, because the eyes of others have no other data for computing our orbit than our past acts. We are loath to disappoint them. But why should you keep your head over your shoulder? Why drag about this corpse of memory, lest you contradict somewhat you have stated in this or that public place? Suppose you should contradict yourself. What then? It seems to be a rule of wisdom never to rely on your memory alone, scarcely even in acts of pure memory, but to bring the past for judgment into the thousand-eyed present and live ever in a new day. In your metaphysics you have denied personality to the deity. Yet when the devout motions of the soul come, yield to them heart and life, though they should clothe God with shape and color. Leave your theory as Joseph left his coat in the hand of the harlot and flee. A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. With consistency a great soul has simply nothing to do. He may as well concern himself with his shadow on the wall. Speak what you think now in hard words, and tomorrow speak what tomorrow thinks in hard words again, though it contradict everything you said today. Ah, so you shall be sure to be misunderstood. Is it so bad then to be misunderstood? Pythagoras was misunderstood, and Socrates and Jesus, and Luther, and Copernicus, and Galileo, and Newton, and every pure and wise spirit that ever took flesh. To be great is to be misunderstood. Recording by Robert Scott Mojo Move 411 dot com m o j o m o v e four one one dot com august the eighth two thousand and seven